you would turn to Ruth chapter 1. This morning we'll be reading verses 11 through 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, you will, there's a, a sermon guide that has the scripture printed on it so that you can follow along. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest." We're living in a, in a cultural moment right now that I would, I would call a function of homelessness. And, and what I mean by that is that the, uh, the religious and social and intellectual structures that have provided shelter, so to speak, for us are being contested. In some cases, they're vanishing. And so we find ourselves in this cultural moment where many of us are, are wandering, trying to find shelter, trying to find refuge in the midst of a world that in a lot of ways is very chaotic. And in not finding shelter, we've gone to even making shelters, making refuge out of social or religious or sexual resources. And what we know is that there's only one refuge. There's one true refuge where we'll find rest, and that is in God through his son, Jesus Christ. But what is striking about this book of Ruth, as we said last week, is that it falls between the utter chaos of the judges. That period of the judges, it was dark, and most of Israel had turned from the Lord. Absolute chaos. And then you have Ruth, and then 1 Samuel, which is the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. So from chaos to some form of 
the kingdom and what's in between, this book of Ruth. And what we see is that, is that we go from utter chaos to the kingdom through the mercy and kindness of God's people, which is what this story of Ruth is all about. There was a small remnant in all of Israel that turned away. There was a small remnant that, that showed mercy and kindness to Naomi and Ruth. And so this series and the theme of this series is in the chaos of this world, God builds his kingdom through the mercy and through the kindness of his people. And so what we're looking at in the book of Ruth is how this, this refuge of God, this refuge of the mercy and kindness and generosity and hospitality of God's people can intersect with the need for shelter, the need for refuge that we see our neighbors have and that we ourselves have found in Christ. So last week we answered the question, how do you enter your neighbor's sorrow? And looked at the profound sorrow of Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Naomi losing her husband. The two daughters-in-law losing their husbands. So Naomi loses her, her husband and her two sons and the profound sorrow. This week we're gonna look at how do you enter your neighbor's, how do you, how do you seek your neighbor's good? How do you seek your neighbor's good? And as we talk about our neighbor's good, we're gonna look at the, the multidimensional nature of goodness, really three dimensions of goodness. Goodness from God, goodness to our neighbor, and goodness from our neighbor. So let's begin with goodness from God. More than once in this passage, we find Naomi giving voice to her struggle. She's struggling deeply. She's a, she is a struggling believer. And 10 years before this, her and her husband Elimelech decided with their two sons to leave the promised land and to wander to a, a far off country, an enemy country, an enemy nation, Moab, to find greener pastures. And so just Naomi's presence in Moab shows her wandering from God and her spiritual struggle she finds herself in. But then in this passage, she gives voice to it. And you, you start to see why. Right? Verse 13 says, she's bitter because the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then in verse 20, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Then verse 21, the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. See, she left Judah full and now She's returning to Bethlehem and Judah empty. She's a struggling believer who is, is seeing the hardship and the emptiness and the profound loss and tragedy as evidence in her mind that God is out to get her, that God is punishing her. Now, everyone in this room understands what Naomi's feeling to some degree, whether you have been through just tiny little bits of suffering or whether you have experienced profound suffering in your life, you know what it feels like to have those moments and those thoughts of, is the Lord, is he zapping me? Is he punishing me? Is he out to get me? That's where Naomi's at. Now, why? Why does she find herself in that place? Why does she find herself in the place of having forgotten the goodness of God, having, having forgotten and therefore struggling to embrace the goodness of God? It's because she's forgotten 
the massive displays of God's goodness in the past to her and to her people. In fact, when she says, call me Mara, it should have triggered in Naomi's minds the events that led to that wilderness location in Exodus 15 called Mara. God's people had come through the Red Sea miraculously. He had delivered them from Egypt, from their, their slavery. And, and about three days after they get through this miraculous Red Sea parting, they're in the desert without water. And finally, when they get to the place that has water, that's called Mara, the water's bitter. And so they start grumbling and they start complaining against God and against Moses. And so what does God do? Tells Moses, take that log, throw it in the water. Moses throws it in the water and the water instantly turns sweet. Now, now did God deliver them from their pain of having no water as a reward for their goodness? No. In fact, he, he, he gave them sweet water right in the midst of their bitterness and their complaining and their grumbling. Three days earlier, he, earlier, he had just delivered them. And in three days, they forgot that. <laughs> but God poured out his goodness. He poured out his grace on them, gave them sweet water. And then if that's not enough, the next place they go after Mara in the desert is a place called Elam, which has 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, i.e. a massive oasis. They complain, and what does God do? He pours out more goodness on them. They grumble, what does God do? He pours out more grace on them. That that's the goodness of God, that God pours out his goodness on his people, Naomi had forgotten this. She had forgotten about God's grace poured out in the Exodus to her and her people. In the same way that we forget the grace of God and the goodness of God poured out in Jesus. You know, even if you look at Ruth's words to Naomi in verse 16, right? I will, I will be your God and, and you will be my people. That that's the language that God, that, that God uses when he establishes the covenant with Abraham. He says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And Ruth's words to Naomi almost mirror that. Again, for, for Naomi, it should have been this trigger to, oh yes, I serve a good, gracious God who has said he will be my God and, and I will be his. that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant with Abraham, that Jesus is the one that has come with us in every aspect. He left the glories of heaven in order to say to us, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Right? Jesus didn't even shirk back from death in his identification with us. He died and was buried just like we were. We will be one day. He so has identified with us. He has clung to us in his grace, just like Ruth clung to Naomi and, and was this unexpected gift of grace to Naomi. Jesus Christ has clung to us, has fully identified with us, and is the, the manifestation of God's goodness and grace to us. Even in the midst of our emptiness that we experience circumstantially, God's steadfast love is on display in this book of Ruth. In fact, Ruth's uh, uh, actions towards Naomi are described twice as hesed. 
In chapter one, verse eight, chapter three, verse 10, it's the word that means steadfast love or loyal love. And it describes how Ruth, the outsider, clung to Naomi. And it's a picture of how our God has clung to us in grace and steadfast love. You know, the only reason that the God's redemption story doesn't end after the judges the dark period of the judges is because of God's steadfast love. And the book of Ruth is a, is a picture of it. Now, why do I begin a sermon on seeking your neighbor's good with talking about God's goodness to you? Because if you forget it, you will end up bitter and self-focused like Naomi. I mean, I want you to see here, Naomi has a person outside of the covenant of Israel, a total outsider in Ruth standing before her. And what does she say to her? Go back to your gods like your sister Orpah did. Now, you're not gonna find that in the, the, in the manual on how to share the gospel. Right? Go back to your gods. Right? Go, just go back to your gods, right? But that's, what, that's where you end up when you're, when, when you're like Naomi and, and not embracing God's goodness and having forgotten God's goodness, you lose sight of people. You lose sight of neighbors. You lose sight of what you have in Christ. And so you lose sight of what you have to give, the goodness you have to give somebody. And you begin to turn inward you start viewing your emptiness. And let me just say this morning that every person here on some level has some form of emptiness going on. Whether it is profound or whether it's, it's small, relatively speaking. But what happens when you forget the goodness of God is you start to view your emptiness as either God's against you and out to get you or that he's withholding the good life from you. And either of those produce this massive introspection. Rather than seeing that God does take away good things in themselves at times for the purpose of using your life as a testimony to his relentless grace and goodness. That that's the perspective God would want you to have. If you're, if you're dealing with emptiness, that God's purpose in that is, to, is to, for your life to be a display of his goodness and of his grace. And that's why goodness from God is the foundation of seeking your neighbor's good. That you receive goodness from God and you have goodness to give. Now let's move to the second point. Goodness to your neighbor. I've just painted a fairly dim picture of Naomi. Now let me redeem her a bit. And let this be evidence that God can use you right in the midst of your struggle in a profound way to accomplish redemption. God can and will use you right in the midst of your struggle. You're struggling to embrace his goodness, whatever it may be, to accomplish redemption. It's what he does with Naomi. And what we see in verses 11 to 13, and even earlier in verse eight, is that Naomi does seek Ruth and Orpah's good. Now you could argue that she's in a place where she's not seeking their, 
salvific good and inviting them into the covenant, but, but she seeks their good. Notice what she says. She, she tells them to return to their mother's house. She wants them to not be homeless. <laughs> she wants them to have a home. She wants them to have a shelter and protection. She wants them to have a husband, which means she wants them to have provision. Right? She is seeking the flourishing of Ruth and Orpah. And we see this in verse 13. She says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She feels bad that the Lord's hand against her as she has wrongly perceived it is affecting Ruth and Naomi. She wants what's good for them. She wants them to flourish even when she isn't flourishing, even in her emptiness, she wants what's good for them. Even when she has no husband and is too old to have a husband, she wants a husband for them. She is seeking their good. And so what we see here is even in the midst of her own internal struggles, which are profound, she's seeking the good of Ruth. You know, you've, you've heard the phrase, misery loves company. And that is basically the mindset that if I'm going down, you're going down with me. If I'm not happy, there's no way you're going to be happy. If I'm not flourishing, you're not going to flourish. And what the gospel does and what God's goodness does is it empowers you in your own emptiness to actually seek the good of your neighbor who may have the circumstantial good that you want. Let me give you a couple examples of that. You can either host or help plan a baby shower for a neighbor if you're struggling with your own barren womb. You can uh, help a neighbor move into their new home and maybe bring a housewarming gift, even if you're struggling deeply with not being able to purchase a home of your own. You can take your neighbor out to dinner after they get a job to, to celebrate with them, even if you're struggling with your own unemployment. What we typically do is that when we're dealing with our own form of emptiness, we quarantine ourselves from any situation that would put us in, in the place where we have to face what we're lacking. And the thought is that if we do that, that it will keep us from growing more bitter or more empty. And the result is actually just the opposite. That isolation, even if in your own mind it's for good reason, isolation always increases bitterness it always increases emptiness. And so in the midst of our own emptiness, sometimes what we do is we think, when I get back to full, when I am restored to full, then I'll begin thinking about others. Then I'll, be, I'll, I'll think about giving back. And the gospel says, and the goodness of God says, no. No, in your emptiness, you in your emptiness, become a channel of God's goodness to others. And it's even a more profound testimony in your emptiness when you're giving goodness to others of the gospel, because it's clear to those people it's not coming from you if you're not experiencing 
that circumstance or that situation. You all are familiar with the Make a, Make a Wish Foundation. It was launched in 1980. And they, they worked to grant uh, the wishes of, of termini- terminally ill children. And most of the time, as you're aware of, you know, a terminally ill child will wish to, to meet their favorite celebrity, right? Or, or to shake the president's hand or uh, to go to Disney World. But back in 2004, there was a young man, his name was Max Shulist. He was a critically ill nine-year-old. And he wished to enrich the lives of others. So right before a brain tumor took his life on April 9th, 2004, he got the Make-A-Wish Foundation to build a rock climbing wall for his friends at Ellisville Elementary School in Missouri. A rock climbing wall that he would not be able to enjoy day after day with his friends. And uh, the, the principal of this school, Dave Ness, it was a 600 student school in suburban Ellisville, Missouri, he said this, we learned a lesson from a nine-year-old that even when we're going through tough times, we should be thinking of other people and not ourselves. Now, before we translate that to just try harder to think for others, let me take you back to the goodness of God. It's the gospel. It's the goodness of God flowing to you. The work of Jesus Christ that says, no, God, you are good. And my emptiness comes from your good hand. And so therefore, I will take your goodness and I will open up the channels and let it flow to those around me and seek their flourishing even when I don't feel like I'm flourishing. Goodness to your neighbor. So three dimensions, goodness from God, which leads to goodness to your neighbor, and then the last, goodness from your neighbor. What is really striking in this passage is that Naomi doesn't only seek Ruth's good, but she actually receives Ruth's good. After she tells Ruth to go, go stay here, go with your people, follow Orpah, don't come with me, Ruth delivers to Naomi this most beautiful phrase. I mean, this is the kind of thing you hang on the wall. Verses 16 and 17. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Don't urge me, Naomi. Listen to me. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. I mean, that is God's covenant language in in Genesis. That's the language we use in marriage ceremonies unbelievable loyalty. And what's really striking is that the author of the book of Ruth goes overboard to remind us who Ruth is. She's a Moabite. She's from the country of Moab. She is, uh, she's an outsider beyond outsiders. And yet she's showing this amazing love to Naomi that mirrors God's covenant towards us. Uh, two two important truths that I think we see here in Ruth's actions towards Naomi. The first is that those outside the faith have goodness to offer. 
Those outside the faith have goodness to offer. It's what we call common grace. And that just means that God is kind and good to believer and unbeliever alike. All people on the face of the earth have access to God's good creation. All people have access to the energy of the sun. All people have access to the replenishment of God's reign. And beyond that, God actually gifts people, non-believers with gifts that bless the world, that bless you, that bless me. And we see this dynamic of God's people receiving goodness from outsiders throughout the scriptures. Let me just give you a few examples. Uh, Joseph receives protection from Pharaoh and the goodness of Egypt. David receives protection from the Philistines when he was fleeing from Saul. Solomon receives gifts from the queen of Sheba. In the end, Isaiah says, Jerusalem will receive, will receive gifts from all the nations of the earth. Jesus received gifts from foreign kings. That's who the wise men were. Jesus receives food from sinners. He receives respect from a Gentile soldier. Paul appeals to the protection for protection from foreign kings. Now, why is this so important when we talk about our cultural moment? Because we live in a culture war right now, or culture wars, and it's been going on for a while. And in the midst of the culture war, what happens is people get identified by their sin. And I spoke on it last week. They get identified by their sin, not the glory of being made in the image of God. And so in, in these culture wars, Christian faithfulness can be defined by telling someone they're wrong and not beautiful. Now, let me just explain this, all right? And let me ease some tensions in the room right now. This doesn't mean we go light on sin. It doesn't mean that we, we don't resist sin. What it means is that we treat people and address people according to the storyline of the Bible, which means that Genesis 1 and 2 comes before Genesis 3 which means that we see the glory and the image of God in people, though shattered, before we see the ugliness of sin. The beauty of the image of God comes before the ugliness of sin. And so I just ask you, when you see people, what do you see first? In your neighbors or, or in people that uh, you would maybe classify as an enemy, what do you see first? Do you see the glory of the image of God, though shattered? Or do you see sin and the ugliness of sin? My wife and I, uh, years ago, we visited Cumberland Island, if you've been. It's right across from St. Mary's, just a little bit north of here. Beautiful island. And, and when, you, when you walk on this island, there's one section where there's a 59-room Scottish castle that was built in 1900. I mean, just palatial. In 1959, fire destroyed it but not completely. So the remnant is still there. And I remember when we were walking around this castle and there was this constant tension. Do, do I see the destruction or do I see this amazing, beautiful castle? And it's the same tension that you and I face when we see people. Do we see the destruction and the ugliness of what sin has done? Or do we see the glory of the image of God that has been destroyed by sin? But do we see the glory of the image of God? And I would challenge you that as you think about the people in your life, 
and the neighbors around you, that if you find yourself first seeing people according to sin or by sin, that you would study them, that you would study them until you see the glory of the image of God. Let me give you a personal example of this. Years ago, uh, my wife ran into a woman uh, at a playground, at a park, got to know her. She had a daughter, a single mom, had a daughter that was the age of our daughter. Got to know her a little bit at the park, got her phone number, started reaching out to her. They started doing play dates. And it became very apparent very quickly that, that she was not uh, one who was uh, supportive of the gospel, um, that she was not a believer, had no intention to be, had in fact some very strong opinions against Christianity. They were thought out. She had spent time thinking about why she stood where she was. She did. My wife has respected that. But she is an amazing mother. She's a phenomenal mother. The way that she courageously and intentionally pours into her daughter, we have learned things from her. And my wife has encouraged her in that. We see the image of God in her. Oh yes, it's shattered like it is in all of us, but we see the image of God. There's, there's beauty in her. There's beauty in how she's raising her daughter by herself. And we encourage that and we support that and we long that that shattered image would become full in Jesus one day. But we honor her and her dignity of being made in the image of God and we receive from her and we receive goodness from her and has challenged the way we raise our daughter. And so the first truth we learn in, in how Ruth treats Naomi is that there is goodness to be received from your neighbor. And that that's not going light on the gospel, that's actually sharing the gospel when you honor that. It's proclaiming Genesis 1 and 2, that you're made in the image of God. There's goodness in you. Oh yes, there's a problem of sin, but, but you're made in the image of God. That's the first truth we learn. The second, so mission and common grace, right? The second truth that we learn is mission and community. Mission and community. How does Ruth, an outsider, a Moabite, go from that in the beginning of the book of the Ruth to the end of the book being the mother of Jesus and a critical component in the history of redemption? That is a profound transformation, Outsider to mother of Jesus in the genealogy, critical player in the redemption of the world. How does that happen? It happens through the mercy and the kindness of God's people. When she returns to Bethlehem and Judah with Naomi, she, is, she receives the mercy and the kindness of God's people, especially through, as we'll see, a player that's gonna get introduced in our story in a little bit, Boaz. But that's what transforms her, is the mercy and the kindness of God's people. Even when she uh, speaks to Naomi in verse 16, and she says, your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Ruth spent 10 years with Naomi. Now, we don't know what their relationship was like, but we can assume that over 10 years that she learned about Naomi's God. Yes, Naomi was struggling, and yes, her and Elimelech were on the run and wandering and all that, but she knew that Naomi was a, a part of Israel and she learned about their God. 
And she understood that, that God had made a covenant and that it was a horizontal covenant and there was a people. So she understood to follow Naomi's God meant joining a people. She understood that. And then she experienced it when she was brought in and welcomed in as a stranger to this people and to the remnant of this people that was still honoring the Lord. She was an immigrant from a foreign nation who went back to Judah with her mother-in-law. She was an immigrant, a refugee, who was received back, who was received into the, the people of Israel. You know, this is a hot topic right now in politics, immigration policy. Don't, I'm not going any farther than that. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Uh, immigration policy, right, is a hot topic. And you know what, there's a, there's a place for to have that discussion on immigration policy. But when an immigrant or a refugee moves next door to you or moves into your life, that's not a political issue. That's a mercy issue. That is a mercy issue where the mercy and the kindness and the goodness of God's people is poured out to outsiders, to immigrants, to refugees. And they're moving in all over our city. And we have people that are doing work with them. You know, Ruth was drawn to God by the community of God's people. And oftentimes today, we see the similar thing, that people are drawn to the community of God's people, to the love, to the kindness, to the mercy, to the generosity, to the hospitality of God's people, that that's how they're converted into community, oftentimes before they're converted to the Christ. We see it on the college campus all the time. And so the challenge to us is welcome the stranger. Welcome the stranger. Open the doors wide open so that, that strangers and outsiders can come in and see the beauty of commitment and loyalty and sacrifice and goodness within the body of Christ. That they can walk into a community and go, wow, I've never seen people so loyal to one another and now loyal to me and I just walked into this community. that they would see the beauty of Christ. NPR ran a segment back in 2012. It was on a poor community in Paraguay that had become or formed an amazing orchestra that plays instruments out of recycled trash. And this was a people and the musicians that came from the city of Katura. And this was a city or a slum on top of a landfill a landfill where 1,500 pounds of trash are dumped every day and 1,000 people live on top of this landfill and they make their living by picking through the trash with these long poles called ganchos. And Fabio, Fabio Chavez, he was a young professional and a musician. He and a man by the name of Luis Zaron, a music conductor, they saw this, this community of 1,000 people this poverty, these awful health conditions. And so they moved in and they brought warmth and dignity. And here's how they did it. Fabio Chavez showed up with like five instruments and he passed them out and he realized quickly he didn't have enough because people were flocking. So he asked, this is a beautiful story, Nicholas Gomez to make some instruments 
from the trash that was fallen in the landfill so he could pass them out to the children that were just flocking, right, to keep them occupied. Well, it turns out they started making these instruments and the children started playing it. And before long, they, they were playing an orchestra. And these instruments, miraculously redeemed instruments, listen to this, a cello made out of an oil can and old cooking tools, a flute made from tin cans, a drum set that uses x-rays as the skins, bottle caps that serve as the keys for a saxophone, a double bass constructed out of chemical cans, and a violin made from a battered aluminum salad bowl and strings tuned with forks. Where's Parker? Next Sunday, there's the idea. And, and at the end of this segment, this, this man, Fabio Chavez, he said this. People realize that we shouldn't throw away trash carelessly. Well, we shouldn't throw away people either. What a beautiful picture of the image of God stamped on every human being. There are no throwaways that belong on the top of a landfill. What a beautiful picture of Christian community, of giving meaning and purpose to life and beauty to life and infusing a community with dignity and value. And what a picture of us, recycled <laughs> instruments, so to speak, redeemed for Christ and in Christ. What a beautiful picture of what the Christian community is supposed to be. And so I, I, I plead with you, and I urge you to be this kind of beautiful community that receives goodness from God, even in our emptiness, gives it to our neighbor, receives it from our neighbor, that we would be a people that welcome the stranger and seek our neighbor's good. Let's pray. Father, if we're all honest with ourselves, we were once, so to speak, on top of a landfill, homeless, with no hope, with no meaning, with no purpose. And you came and you redeemed us. Jesus, you rescued us from our hopeless state. And you took our sin, the pile of it, the trash of it, the landfill of it, and put it on yourself and bore the judgment for it so that we could become children of God, loved, redeemed, made in your image, and you now restoring that image. And yet, Father, there's those around us, even those here this morning that, that aren't yet there. And I pray and we pray that they would see the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of a people so committed to one another in love that they would want in. Pray you would grab hold of their hearts. Father, would you make us a people that seek our neighbor's good? Would you make us a people that, that open wide the doors to our homes and our workplaces and, and, and our, on our lives and invite the stranger in, invite the outsider in to let them experience your goodness in us and that we wouldn't wait until our emptiness is filled, that we would see and recognize you sovereignly bringing us seasons of emptiness so that we could be a testimony of your relentless grace and mercy in our lives and kindness that it would flow to our neighbors. Father, as we close in worship now, would we rejoice 
Jesus, ultimately you alone are good. We would bow to you and sing of your beauty. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.